We're going to have some more worship and song after our message this morning. Turn to John chapter 12. We got kids we got to dismiss too, don't we? If you've got little ones that are will be part of children's church, you can dismiss them. You don't have to dismiss your kids. If you want to keep them in here for the message, you're welcome and encouraged to do that. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for simplicity and power and impact as we consider one of the most profound truths of the gospel. Lord, I pray for an impact that invades Monday and Thursday and dinner and marriages and priorities and pursuits. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we can just tune out all the distractions and that we can engage something that really matters, something that's worth crying out about. Lord, I pray that you'll speak clearly. I pray that this morning we can quake with Moses, scurry with Isaiah, and we can cover our faces with Elijah. And then we can approach the throne boldly in the finished work of Christ. Lord, we just pray for the full understanding of the gravity of what you've done in and through Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for family fellowship and pray for Paul Blue. I pray for his family, his marriage, Lord. I pray that it is blessed. I pray that his ministry at home is his primary ministry and that, that his time in the Word is just gushing over on his wife and kids. Lord, I pray that he is wrecked by the gospel, that he's surprised by grace. I pray that he is, is overwhelmed with the sweet privilege of serving a people in the weekly preaching and teaching of the Word. Lord, I pray for the people of Family Fellowship. Lord, I pray that they are growing in worship and wonder. Lord, I pray with Paul and with that people that this church can be true partners and true teammates and never in competition with each other. And Lord, I pray that we'll be about the things that are important to you. Guard us from ever being about a scheme or a design or a plan, unless that is of course, to enjoy you out loud, to preach and teach your word and to respond to it, to make disciples and not just converts. Lord, I pray that the people of this community will be about that rich, robust, sweet task. pray that we can truly serve as teammates with this other church, Lord. Thank you for the sweet privilege of serving with them in Greenville area. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at two verses this morning. And I'll kind of explain the context after I read the verses. John chapter 12, verse 44 and 45. Read. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have to tell you that as I was preparing to preach today, 
I really, this, this message that we're about to enjoy together was really going to be point one of the message that's really going to kind of turn into two or three weeks. And the reason that I just felt like we needed to kind of stop down, slow down, and not be in such a rush to treat something so lightly is because the way this passage starts out says, Jesus cried out and said. I want to understand cried out. I want to understand what that looks like. And I found some other uses of the same word in Greek. One profound use is when Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee and the disciples see him, the King James Version said they were sore afraid, which means they were flat scared. And they saw him and they says they cried out. I mean, in shock, in fear. And then in that same account, Peter tries to walk on the water and the waves and he starts sinking and he cries out to Jesus to save him. The same word. That use of that word is a sense of urgency and it presents this picture that stop, slow down, engage this, this matters, this is important. This thing that I was really going to kind of treat, this section from verses 44 through 50, that I was going to kind of treat in maybe one or two sermons, I've realized, whoa, the one who scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains and buckled the belt of Orion, cries out about something, I think we can give it a Sunday or five. And we can engage this because it apparently matters enough for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to cry out about it. Maybe we can recognize why this is urgent. Something else that tells me that this is urgent and important is that the fact that it just sits in the book of John so weird where it is. The writer of the book of John, if you've been paying attention in John chapter 12, you know that it's Sunday of Passover week. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. He's preaching and teaching. And as it leaves off in verse 36, it says, when Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Remember that visual aid of walking the light while you got it because you're not always going to have it. And then bing, he's gone. That illustration of his sermon. That's where the last place we've seen him. He's gone. We don't know where he is. And then John grabs his Starbucks mug and he looks up. He sets his quill down. He grabs his Starbucks mug and he says, let me share with you the ministry of Jesus. Let me characterize that for you to date. And that's when he looks up and he shares with you and me, verses 37 through 43, that though the alpha preacher was there, the alpha miracle worker was there, that they still did not believe. Proof that we shouldn't be about method. We engage that passage where we realize that they didn't believe because that was part of the prophetic passages from Isaiah. And then here we are in verse 44. This weird insertion, verse 44 through 50, that we don't know where Jesus is, we don't know who Jesus is speaking to, we don't even know that this happened in this space and time chronologically. But we know that to John... It mattered enough for him to place this passage right here. So here's where we pick up with Christ crying out. Between Christ crying out and between John saying, this goes right here appropriately, this is important, it tells me that we need to take our time and engage it. I'll tell you something else that I want to encourage you to realize this morning is that while this couple of verses that we're going to engage this morning is worth this Sunday morning. It's also worth a bit of impracticality. This may be the most impractical sermon I've ever preached. 
But the good thing is, is we're not practitioners, we're worshipers. Worshipers don't care if it's impractical. Because <laughs> it's not about the practice, it's about enjoying the Christ. This is a worshiper's message. So if you leave here thinking, man, I don't, I don't really have three steps to a happy marriage. I don't have three steps to finding the right job or to managing my money. Realize this message is about worship. And it impacts the heart. And it will impact your view of our Christ. Something I want to share with you before I really continue in this message is where we're going next week. I want you to take a look at these verses again. And what Jesus says in these two verses, in verses 44 and 45, He says, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in Christ. It means you don't believe in Him only. But you believe also in the one who sent him. Because in verse 45 is that's explained. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So where we're going next week is we're going to figure out that seeing is believing. Seeing is beholding. Beholding is believing that those go together. That's where we're going next week. But as for this week, we're just going to consider the reality that to see Christ is to see the Father. And we're going to consider, why is that something worth crying out about? To see Christ is to see the Father. Believing on Christ and seeing Christ is not a terminal event. Because to believe on Christ and to see Christ is to believe on and see the Father who sent Him. That's the point of this passage. When we see the Christ and when we believe on Him, we're seeing and believing something beyond Him. When whoever sees me, Sees him who sent me. Now, if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, oh, yeah, he's, he's pretty passionate about that, but I, I'm kind of like on the inside, I'm going, so what? I mean, I would never say that because I wouldn't even want anybody to think I'm, I'm, I, I don't care about it. But on the inside, I'm kind of going, okay, all right, what's the point? You're thinking the same thing that I thought as I was going to give this a one point treatment in a whole sermon. Oh, yeah, and by the way, Jesus revealed. The Father. So it's okay if you think that, because I'm hopefully going to address why, so what, here in the next few minutes. Hopefully going to address why this is something worth crying out about. Turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. I'll give you page numbers this morning. Sometimes I, I... I forget that not everybody knows the Bible, uh, where the books are and everything like that. So it's page 73 of your pew Bible. Actually, page 74. What we're going to do in these next few minutes, in order to appreciate the gravity of seeing Christ means seeing the Father, why that's worth the King of kings and Lord of lords crying out about, and why it's worth us taking a single Sunday on, We're going to consider three stories from the Old Testament. Three what I'll call theophanies. Where God reveals some of himself to someone. But first I want to share this passage with you. Now realize what we just considered from Christ. Where he said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now listen to this passage from Exodus chapter 33 verse 20. God is speaking to Moses, and we're going to consider the whole story in a minute, but I want to just tease out this reality. God tells Moses, he says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
That's where we're going to go in these next few minutes is consider these three glimpses of glory that three different characters had, Moses, Elijah, and Isaiah. We're going to explore that question. Can you see God and live? And if in some way you can see part of him, what's the character of that engagement like? Where's it going to leave you? How's it going to leave you? We're going to consider the character of these encounters to understand the cry of Jesus. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And why that matters enough for us to take time considering it this morning. Let's look at this story from Moses, beginning in chapter 33, verse 11. The story itself, where we're really going to focus, is is beginning in verse 12, but I want to show you a little excerpt from verse 11. You might be familiar enough with your Old Testament to know that there are times where God reveals Himself to people where there is even the impression that He sees them face to face and they see Him face to face. Jacob, people like that. There's these stories. And here's one of those examples in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. As we read that, we might have a difficult time reconciling that with the verse we just read, that whoever sees God can't live. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to understand, first of all, the reality that this picture that seeing God face to face here in verse 11 must be something having to do with that relationship of intimacy. It does not mean that Moses was seeing the glory, the raw glory of God, because he would be consumed by it. The reason it does not mean that is because of the way this story unfolds. So let's start in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know, by, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, this is Moses talking to God. He says, please show me your ways. That's his first request. That's a good request. That ought to be our prayer each week. Lord, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's God speaking to Moses. So Moses responds, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other tribe on the face of the earth? That sounds really familiar. Now, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing, you remember he asked, show me your ways? He says, This very thing that you've spoken I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. So Moses says, let's up the ante a little bit. I just asked you to show me your ways. Let me see if I can push the envelope a little bit. So Moses says, please show me your glory. (laughs) Moses doesn't know what he's asking for. Listen to how this story unfolds. So God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you... Proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, remember the verse we read, you cannot see my face, Moses, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, here's how we'll sort this out. Here's how we'll work this request out. It says, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. That's the only way you're going to handle this experience, Moses. And no peeking. Because if you peek, you might go up like a match. 
Because my glory is so white hot. My raw glory of my face and my holiness. But I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So let's see how the... He's just telling him what's going to happen. So let's see actually what unfolds in chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and prepare yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain because they'll be lamb chops if they do. I'm going to show you my glory. And if there's herds of grazing, then they're going to be lamb chops laying. It's going to be dinner. So make sure nobody else is walking around where they might see this. Because I'm going to have my hand over you and no peeking. I'm going to reveal some of my glory to you. In verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone. You think he's following orders? Boy, I'd be following orders. I'd be making sure that I was getting this right. He cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. You know, he's got his hand out over him. That's the only way Moses would survive. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Look what Moses does. In verse 8, and Moses quickly, you think that's an understatement? He quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I bet he melted into the ground. With the white hot holiness of God passes in front of him, so much so that he's got to put his hand over him so he's not consumed by that glory. Moses quickly bows his head toward the earth and worships. And let's think for a moment how this leaves Moses in verse 29. We don't know how long it's been since that actually happened. Maybe it's hours, maybe it's days by this point. But when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He looked like a flashlight coming down a mountain because he'd been the presence of God and he had seen some of his glory. Think about that story for a minute. Go back to where we began, where Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Why that's worth crying out about. And then consider this reality that Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God essentially says, sorry, Moses, you can't handle it. Sorry, Moses, I'm, I'm going to pass by you, but I'm going to have to put, you, put my hand over you just so you don't go up like a match. You may be the most humble man on earth, but you can't handle the raw glory of the holy living God. I'll put my hand over you and no peeking. God lets him see his back. We don't know that that was like a real back because we know that God is spirit. God doesn't walk around and have vertebra, shoulder blades. What that seems to point to there in the original language in the Hebrew is that he, he was allowed to see, Moses was allowed to see the aftershocks of his glory. 
He was allowed to see the backside of glory. And just the backside of glory put him on his face, worshiping, and made his face light up. Just the backside of glory. Let's look at the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. Let's try page 301. Give you a little bit of context here. Remember, we're trying to explore the question of why this really matters. That whoever sees Christ sees the one who sent him. And why it's worth Christ crying out about. So here's our second theophany we're going to look at. It's a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. Elijah, by this point, has faced Ahab. And he's uh, prophesied to him that there would be no rain that would come on the earth for a period of time. He also went head-to-head with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Spanked them. Made them look like chumps. And then, at this point, he's running from Jezebel. Running like a chicken. The hero that faced all the prophets is now running like a chicken. In verse 9 is where we pick up of chapter 19. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's the sin of Elijah. And a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers, fall prey to the sin of Elijah. Where you think, nobody else loves the Lord like I do. Nobody's faithful like I am. God shows him otherwise that there are Thousands of people here yet that have not bent their knee to Baal. But the sin of Elijah, he says, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God says to him, you afraid of the wrong person. You don't need to be afraid of Jezebel. Elijah, let me show you something. Here's what he says. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. There it is again. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. I don't know about you, but I've never seen wind that strong. I've never seen wind that will break rocks. That's some serious wind. I cannot imagine that Elijah would not be quaking at this point, that he would not be trembling at the might of the Lord, but the Lord's not done. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. By this point, I bet he's just a a wreck. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He's got... Things that he's dealing with here, he's got wind that breaks rocks, he's got an earthquake, he's got fire, and then he's got a low whisper, and just the whisper of God makes him cover his face. I can't even handle this God. I can't even even consider seeing him. Just his whisper makes me cover my face. 
we got Moses quaking on his face, just seeing the backside of the glory, glory of God. And we got Elijah just hearing a whisper from God, covering his face. Oh! Let's look at the third theophany, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, we're dealing with the question, why would Christ cry out about this thing that just seems like, okay, yeah, no-brainer that you've revealed the Father. Why is that such a big deal? At least theophanies are going to educate us on that. Here's the third one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Page 571 of your pew Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Listen to the things that Isaiah is able to describe. (laughs) This is pretty funny. He says, I saw the Lord, but let's listen to his descriptors. And the train of his robe, that's the hem, like the hem of your jeans. Okay, you mean like the very bottom? (laughs) And the train of his robe filled the temple above him. Okay, we've looked kind of below him, and now we're going to look way above him. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said... This is the point where if Isaiah was a girl, he would have gone, you know what I'm talking about, guys? Where you're driving, and your wife, she goes, and it takes a couple years off your life. It's on the second X chromosome. Girls have that thing, but Isaiah didn't do that because he's got a Y chromosome. If he'd have been a girl, though, that would have been an appropriate time. He says, woe is me. Where's a crack in the concrete that I can hide? Where's some place I can melt? Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says he saw God, but all he has to describe him by is the hem of his robe. And the seraphim that flew above his head because he's probably scurrying like a roach trying to find a place to hide from the white-hot glory of God. I was reading about this. I was preparing for this. I was thinking about when I was a kid. I'm sure this happened. I can't tell you a date, place, or time that this happened, but I'm sure that I experimented with the sun. Can I look at the sun? I even think I had a couple of these encounters. It only took a couple times. Really should have only taken once where I tried this. But to really look at the sun and examine it, you just can't do it. You don't need much of a lesson there. You don't need many encounters to know that you cannot gaze on that light. It is an unapproachable light almost. And then if you try it, you're going to need a little while afterwards to try and recover from that venture. But I thought about it. Was this what it was like for Isaiah? looking in the light because he describes nothing about the central character of God. He speaks about what's above him and what's below him at his hem of his robe. 
He can't look on God and live. He saw glory in some form. But really, I bet what he was looking for was a crack in the concrete. Where can I hide? So what we're seeing here in these three glimpses of glory with men quaking and falling to their faces, with men covering their face just at a mere whisper. What we're seeing here in a man who's likely scurrying for a place to hide is that indeed no one can see God and live. No one. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God is a consuming fire. It's not the only place it says it. It says it all over our Bibles. God is a consuming fire. Turn to John 5. John chapter 5. Verse 37. Page 890 of your pew Bible. Verse 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Because you couldn't handle it. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. For the first time, I'm reading a couple of passages differently. It's on page 991 of your pew Bible. For the first time, I'm reading a couple of passages very differently, and I'm understanding an attribute of God that I'm now pretty thankful for. One of them is revealed here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For the first time in my life... I'm thinking about the attribute of God being invisible, and I'm going, oh, thank you. Thank you. That, that, that's a work of grace. That He does not consume me just with His raw glory. Turn to chapter 6 of the same book. Verse 16. Look back a few sentences. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He's invisible. No one is able to see Him. And remember the question. What we're reckoning with is, why is this so profound that Jesus would cry out, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. What's the connection here? Turn to John chapter 1, verse 18. Here's the connection. This is the thing that should rock your world. It should rock this, these few moments. It should rock your week. This simple truth about Christ. John chapter 1. Verse 18. John writes, No one has ever seen God. There it is again. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's speaking of God the Son, 
He has made him known. What that means right there, that last phrase, he has made him known, that could be translated from the Greek directly as he's explained him. (laughs) Nobody's ever seen God. We got a couple guys here that seen little glimpses. And they're scurrying and quaking and covering their faces, just hearing the whisper from God. So yeah, indeed, no one has ever seen God, because if he did, he wouldn't live. But the only God, God the Son, who's at the Father's side, he has explained him. This is why this was worth Christ crying out about. This was why it was worth John sticking this, this paragraph where he stuck it. Because it's the beginning of the glory book. Seeing Christ is to see the invisible God. (laughs) Seeing Christ is to reveal the invisible. He explains the inexplicable. (laughs) He describes the indescribable. That's who and what Jesus Christ is. I was thinking, man, this is a miracle as far as I'm concerned. When I think about the miracles, I think about feeding the multitudes. I think about Jesus walking on the water. I think about healing the blind, turning water to wine. I think about some of those miracles. Those are awesome miracles. The virgin birth, wonderful miracle. But the greater miracle, I think, is that a holy, invisible, transcendent God was able to take on flesh and become visible. And not diminish in holiness. And not be any less God. That he could show up and explain himself. That is an incredible miracle. As I consider and I grow in my understanding of the holiness of God and the godness of Jesus. As those two things come together. uh, Marveling at the holiness of God and the godness of Jesus. I wonder how Bethlehem didn't just catch on fire on Christmas morning. I wonder how Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea were not consumed by his mere presence. That's a miracle. That's a miracle when I'm considering the true holiness of God and I'm seeing scurrying Isaiah, hiding Elijah, quaking and trembling Moses. How a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors could walk and talk, and dine, and sit at the feet of him, how they could have their feet washed by this holy God is the real miracle. How could they do that without scurrying like Isaiah, or quaking like Moses, or covering their faces like Elijah? The reason Jesus cries out about this is because this matters. I know the danger, man. When I'm preparing a message like this, I know the danger of the people going, man, that's really impractical. I don't kind of don't get it. You will never get it. We'll spend eternity marveling at this. We get a jump start on it right now. That's what worship is, people. When we consider truths like this and we enjoy truths like this. Turn to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. <clears throat> I want to share with you briefly what kind of age this is, given what we've just considered. What kind of age does this make this? Exodus chapter 6, 
Uh, it's in the 50s range. 49, actually. 48. I knew that when a few, a few months ago when we considered not on the Passover together, that this was going to equip us for something. Whenever God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, he gave him some details about what that meant in terms of their relationship. Listen to this. Chapter 6, verse 2 of Exodus. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. El Shaddai, specifically. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. While I had a sweet, special relationship with them, you guys that I'm about to lead out of Egypt, I'm going to have an even more intimate relationship with you. I'm going to drop handles with you. That's what we called it at A&M. When I was a cadet at A&M, my freshman year, I showed up at, on campus and I, I, I went in the cadet corps and I found out that basically what I had to do is I had to introduce myself to every upperclassman on the quad or even around campus. Howdy, Fish McGraw is my name. You're standing at attention, feeling like the biggest dork. Howdy, Fish McGraw is my name, sir. And they would introduce himself. My name's Smith. Glad to meet you, Mr. Smith. I'm from Alexandria, Louisiana, taking general studies. That's what I tried to major in. And they were glad to meet you there, Fish McGraw. My name's, you know, he already told me your name. I'm from so-and-so, and I'm taking so-and-so. Well, glad to meet you. And from that point on, it's Mr. So-and-so, and I'm Fish McGraw. But then there comes a certain day, hopefully weeks later, sometimes months later, for the really tough nuts to crack, where they say, hey, Fish McGraw, come here. Sir, yes, sir. And they stick their hand out and say, what's your mama call you? Uh, ben. Well, my mama calls me John. And we're on a first name basis. And while he's still an upperclassman, and I'm still a lower, uh, an underclassman, there's a new connection there where we're, now we're on a first name basis, where he dropped handles with me. That's what God is doing with Israel right here. He's dropping handles with them. He's sharing with them his name, Yahweh. This is such a profound time. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. This is such a profound time in the life of the people of Israel. In verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Basically, he's saying, Israel, take all your old calendars, your old National Geographic calendars, your old... I don't know what kind of calendars people have. That's what we have. Take them and throw them away. Because you got a new calendar. Because if you're entering a new age, you're entering the Yahweh age. You're entering the, the age and the time where we're going to know each other by first name. This was a special age, a special time for the people of Israel. But even in this special age, where God dropped handles with the nation of Israel... They were still separated by His holiness. Terribly separated. So much so that a few chapters later, Sinai quakes. And God says, you better make sure nobody even comes close to Sinai. Because they'll drop dead. Although they were entering a new age, the Yahweh age, they still had 1,500 years of cumbersome daily sacrifice at the temple and the tabernacle. <laughs> They were still separated by holiness, albeit in a special relationship with God. But now, though, 
Now the people of God are in a whole new place. Contrast the privileged people of Israel in knowing Yahweh on a first-name basis with this people that he's gathering now from the four winds. This people that are gathered, this new Israel. Contrast that old Israel with this new Israel, and this is an even more intimate age. This is not just the age of Yahweh. This is the age of Yahweh explained. This is the age of Yahweh revealed. This is the age of Yahweh described. A new calendar just won't do for this age. How about a new life? How about not just a new afternoon or a new week? How about a new life? <laughs> That's the only appropriate response to God being revealed that the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Ancient of days, the Alpha and the Omega, the invisible God is made visible in Jesus Christ. And His words and His works and His miracles and His movements and His cross and His especially vacant tomb, they all explain the Father. Do we have any idea the blessed age that we are in, people? <gasps> Do we have any idea the intimate relationship that we have with God now through the finished work of Christ? I have one desperate charge for the people across point. One desperate charge is to quake with Moses. Scurry with Isaiah. Cover your face with Elijah. This part of our Bible is so dusty and neglected. And if we engage it, it's really just to kind of teach our kids about being courageous, or brave, or faithful. Should be engaged so we get to know the character of our God. Get to know this God of this Old Testament. If you don't know where to begin, Genesis 1. Read it as families and watch God change the character of your family. Watch Him grow you with depth and worship and wonder. Quake with Moses. Scurry with Isaiah. Cover your face with Elijah. Burn up with Nadab and Abihu. If I'm mentioning some names that you don't recognize, it means you got a lot of reading to do. Burn up with Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire. Drop stone cold dead with Uzzah for reaching out and touching the ark as it faltered. Feel the stones hit you and your children along with Achan and his children for taking the devoted things. Hear the cries of Egypt as they find their firstborn in every home dead in their cribs. Get to know this white, hot, holy, invisible God. And then look to the Son for the rest of the story. Look to the Son for the explanation. You'll enjoy Christ more as the revelation of God. You'll worship Christ harder knowing that the God who spoke creation into existence explained Himself in this Christ. You'll listen to Christ closer, knowing that the very mind of God is revealed in the messages 
the movements, the miracles, the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. He reveals the invisible. He describes the indescribable. He explains the inexplicable. Because of His work, we approach the throne now boldly. Boldly. Through His work and only through His work. I think that's worth a cry. I think that's maybe why He cried out. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. The invisible God is visible in Christ as cause for worship. I know it's impractical. I know is if you come in here with baggage, you're like, man, I need some help with Monday. I need some help with marriage, money, job, health, identity. I need help with all those things. I realize if you've come in here and you've got all that stuff, that's what your, your bag and your hands and your pockets are full of, you may not feel like you've got any solutions, I will encourage you to realize that as you enjoy this simple truth, that it will change you from the inside out and you'll look back at Mondays and Mondays will be different. Because this impacts worship. You look at your marriage and your marriage will morph. Look at your money and things will be different. (laughs) It doesn't mean your checking account is just going to double. But it means He'll change your heart so that that becomes less and less of an issue. He may change your priorities. Mm, Sorry. I don't know how it works. It just works. We can preach to those issues and never change the heart in worship and wonder. And then we're putting a bunch of band-aids on gushing flesh, on gushing heart death wounds. This is a heart message for worshipers that will transform everything. There's no three steps to a happy Monday. Instead, it's just a daily journey of worship and wonder that changes Monday and the rest of the week. Let's worship.